Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education at institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. In this episode, we will be discussing the nuts and bolts of teaching responsive web design in a single class, including different strategies for teaching HTML and CSS, user experience, and visual design. We also touch on how this responsive web design course fits into the larger curriculum and what an ideal set of courses or programs would look like. Today's guest is Chris Hallahan. Chris works full-time for Kent State's College of Communication and Information as a user experience designer. And at IdeaBase, a collaborative, student-run agency located in downtown Kent, Ohio, where he oversees students conducting research, design, and development work for real-world clients, both inside and outside the university. Chris has two degrees, both from Kent State University, a bachelor's degree in electronic media from the School of Journalism and Mass Communication, and a master's degree in user experience design from the School of Library and Information Science. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you. Uh, this is the first episode where I've actually talked to another, a fellow educator. It feels like it's time. I it feels like it's time that I get you know started doing that. <laughs> All right, so awesome. Um, you have been teaching a course called Responsive Web Design at Kent State University for a year or so now. Before we talk about the course, can you tell the listeners? how it fits into the overall curriculum. Is this course part of the visual communication design program that a lot of educators, I feel, design educators are familiar with? Or is it part of another program at Kent State University? Yeah, sure. So for those not familiar with the higher education world, which uh, quite honestly, I wasn't. I had taught one class before this, so I'm still learning. But it's typically a multi-step and year-long or more process to actually get a course added as part of the official curriculum. So it has to be approved on a lot of different levels throughout the university as I'm learning. And <laughs> we're working uh, with the dean's office now actually on getting this course added. Um, but this same process uh, means that a lot of university courses sometimes get the reputation for being outdated with current trends. However, uh, many universities like Kent State allow for these special topics courses. And those courses allow us to work on more cutting edge course material that isn't part of the program yet. But if a faculty member sees the need for that course and wants to essentially try it out for a few semesters, uh, they can do it that way. So that's how we got responsive web design in, which uh, it wasn't new at the time uh, in 2015, but still new by university standards. Um, and I was actually kind of surprised at how smoothly that process went to get just a single course added. Um, as an elective. And so basically anyone in our VCD visual communication design program can add it as an elective and it's going to be integrated as a component of some new programs we're developing once it's actually approved. Uh, so we framed it also as a general communications course. So it's not only restricted to visual communication majors. And we found that a lot of times students have trouble getting into classes that are 
part of a different program than their own. So our goal from the beginning has been to make this course assess- accessible to anyone in a communications major. Oh, that's so what was the this has absolutely nothing to do with the course and, and, and whatnot. But what was the rationale mm-hmm. for that? Because we're we're coming up across the same thing at UMBC. Where we're like, do we how do we play with the uh, how do we play nicely in the same sandbox with communications? Absolutely. Yeah. And one reason for that was that I wanted from the beginning the students to be working on teams with maybe somebody from a different background Mm -hmm. because that is going to be a little bit more realistic. Um, Typically, when you're in the real world, you're on a team, you're not working with somebody that's uh, of the exact background as you. So it's not a bunch of visual communication people exclusively working together, right? You have different disciplines. So that that's one reason we wanted it to be more of a diverse course set. So that's why we specifically put it as a communications general course so that, you know, anyone could enroll in it. And that's been pretty successful, although it is primarily visual communication majors that are in the class. But I feel like that diversity really helps. No, and, and that's something I struggle with myself is, like you said, the teams don't consist of all designers. It just right. doesn't work that way. So finding any way to replicate real world teams on a consistent basis is, is helpful. Um, exactly. So did you create this course from scratch or was this an existing course? Uh, so yeah, it was from scratch and I had taken a few courses like this, uh, web design courses as a student when I uh, was here And I also surveyed some of the other course offerings at Kent State and similar institutions. What I found was that a lot of them were missing a lot of these key responsive design components that I wanted to include. And they weren't always forward thinking or not concentrating on things like mobile and content from the very beginning. So in a way, like responsive changed so much of our design processes as developers and designers. I wanted to use responsive as a tool to change how we teach web design to our communications majors. And so, whoops, something just fell. Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. Um, so I found that a lot of these courses only concentrated maybe on the visual design aspects or a lot of them were extremely development heavy. So the design and content were very much secondary. And many of them also didn't include a user research or testing component. So I wanted to include something a little more integrated and representative of maybe the modern web design process. And I also wanted it to be accessible to communication students who maybe had no prior knowledge of web programming. So if they were entering into, say, a a course offered by computer science, they're going to be kind of intimidated because a lot of the students in that class have already had some experience there. So I wanted to create more of a comfortable environment for our BCD, our communications, our journalism students. Uh, The other part of creating the course from scratch, um, when we talk to students here at IdeaBase where I work, um, as well as other VCD students, they talked about wanting more ownership over their web projects. So before, a lot of times, they were doing these designs and shipping them off to another developer, kind of that waterfall process. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe they were going into a WordPress theme and just hacking away at it and mm-hmm. not really getting across the design that they intended. So I wanted them to learn to be more integrated um, and integral into the design process through things like prototyping. Uh, because a lot of times these mock-ups they were creating just didn't work in practice. 
And so front-end development knowledge really forces them to think about this strongly. Yeah. I, this is for the listeners. I, I'm a bad host. I really should have had Chris talk about, you know, give the, the large overview of the course. But instead, there's a website for this course. He's documented the huh. heck out of this course. So <laughs> I, would, I would suggest before you go any further is just pause this podcast, go and, and read the course. And so you'll see the exact balance of user research versus visual design versus coding. I mean, it's all laid out. I mean, down to the how many, you know, what he's doing, what, what the class is doing on any given day, how long each student has to do each project. It, it's really well documented. So Thank just you. go back and take a look at that. Um, that said, though, is there anything before we get into like the nuts and bolts kind of thing that isn't on that, you know, that website that you've made for the course that you think the listeners should know, us fellow academics? Yeah, it, uh, one reason initially I had for creating that open website, um, our industry, web design in industry, is very open. That's, Thank you. you know, yeah, yeah. One, that's one of the uh, tenets of web design. I feel like so that I wanted to kind of emulate that in the course. A lot of times, as uh, faculty, you know, we're very proprietary over what we're doing in the classes. So the intention really was to put it out there and see what other people would do as well and get their feedback. So uh, yeah, it's pretty much all laid out there. We do use Blackboard Learn as our online course component for like turning in assignments, but that's really just a tool for man me managing grades and things like that. Everything else is on the website. Great. And, and I've never actually said this, but I also have mine online. It's <laughs> my oh, entire, yeah, my, all my courses, anything I teach, it's, it's all out there open online. I just never really broadcast it. But from the, awesome. my philosophies, again, is the same. I learned how to do all of this, not from paying to go to school, but from reading, going to conferences, mm -hmm. looking at other people's tutorials, looking at code myself. So I feel like I should return it in the same fashion that I received it, <laughs> free yeah, and totally. open to the public. Um, okay, so back to the questions about the course in general, uh, and specifically. So I was trained as a print designer and have lots of experience uh, working as a professional in print design. So any of the web interactive or user experience design for me was, was pretty much self-taught. So until recently, I was teaching web design as if I was a as if it was a print design medium. Mm -hmm. So on a on the flip side, you're a user experience designer by trade. So how do you think you know your training and experience has influenced how you designed and how you teach the course to some you know flip from somebody who did it from a print perspective? Right. And yeah, and, uh, I'm on the same page as you. I, I was self-taught as well. Uh, and so what I wanted to do was bring a little more structure to how people might learn about this outside of just Googling it or, you know, hacking away mm -hmm. um, at, at websites. And so uh, first off, I feel like having that day-to-day real-world experience is important uh, for, for bringing 
new and relevant topics to classes like this. Uh, it's going to be really important, especially with all these new CSS standards coming out and things like that. So one thing I've also observed on my day-to-day -day practice is sometimes we do design or develop within a vacuum, and we're not thinking how people are going to be actually using our site. So um, what we've seen from user research and testing, and I'm, I'm sure you can attest to this as well, is you, actual users don't always use our sites in the way we predicted or intended. So I felt like it was important first for students to build the sites, prototype them, but also see how they work in practice, see people actually interacting with them, and then go back and refine them and um, through the testing results and continue to build upon that. Um, the other thing that I know as a user experience designer, and we talked about this before, is a lot of times I'm working in cross-collaborative teams on these huge web projects. Um, and while there are superstar web designers out there um, that work alone and are great, it's pretty rare these days to just complete everything on the project yourself and without thinking about the client or the organizational needs or even the needs of your team members. So I wanted, if nothing else, to make sure we're building some empathy within the students so that they can see things from those different perspectives. Uh, it's really easy to just design blindly and create all these fun mock-ups and everything and then just say, hey, it's the developer's problem on how <laughs> this is going to work in practice, right? So that's that's not a great approach in my experience. So I think just knowing a little bit about every discipline, even if we're not going to be experts in that particular discipline, is going to help our future designers make more intelligent, informed decisions. No, I, I agree. And that's I, I'm making over. I don't know when it clicked, but over the past year or so, I've been making a huge conscious effort to like make them work in, in groups, and in, in not even to like you know work on it, but just like do some research together. I mean, just right. just anything so they're just working not by themselves. Yeah, um, and they're, and they're not always a, always a fan of the group work, uh, mm -hmm. and so I have to you know stress the importance of that. Uh, you know, a lot of them do. Maybe it's more of a designer thing. I'm not sure, but a lot of them do like to work um, alone. So you have to kind of break them out of their comfort zone sometimes. Yeah, I, I start with just literally, uh, you do it too, um, a responsive case study. But I make them mm -hmm. of an existing site, but I make them do it in groups. And so there's, there's like, mm -hmm. okay, you divide it up. Each one of you answer these questions and, and make sure there's like no repeated filler when you come up and present it. And I, I keep it, you know, a lot of those little exercises just so that, you know, they're used to working together. And I give them a little right. more autonomy when it comes time to actually make the visuals. So, I mean, that's just right. been my approach to it. Um, so the, another, oh, and, and on the user experiences, I, I don't know about you, but. I get a huge kick out of, you know, watching students working on their laptops. They use mm -hmm. those computers in ways that I would never have possibly imagined. And <laughs> so it's just fun watching them. I don't, do yeah. you ever get caught up in that? Just like how, you know, watching how they're working, how they're using a website or how they're using an app? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you, you mean uh, that just personally how they're Yeah, because you're, you know, yeah. you're a big brother, you're walking through the classroom yeah. and you're, you know, you can see them out of the corner of their eye, what they're doing out of the corner of your eye. <laughs> yeah. And I, th I think that's some of just my research tendencies. Yeah. I, I tend to, you know, look over people's shoulders and see, you know, what, what, how are they actually using these things? Where are they struggling? I, th I think that's just instinctive in our trade too. Yeah, no, I, okay, good. Cause I do it too all the time and I love it. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So 
at UMBC, um, where I'm teaching, our interactive slash web design course is part of a, a BFA program with that has a concentration in graphic design. So I constantly struggle to balance visual design with user experience and with front-end development. From looking over your course website, it looks like you are concentrating more on user experience and front-end development. And, you know, the I guess the visual design comes in in third place. So is this an accurate depiction of the, of the course? And it was it by choice that you did yeah, that? I would, yeah, I would say so. Uh, when you, when you think about these courses, there's almost only so much you can fit in mm -hmm. to one semester, right? It's about 15 weeks or so. Um, it's so how I approached it, I'm not academically trained as a visual designer, um, self-taught. Um, however, Many of our students are already juniors and seniors, and they've been through a lot of the rigorous course material already through our BFA program. So I tend to trust their instincts, and I feel like what I can do is help them apply the universal design principles they've already learned in other classes specifically to the interaction and web design field. So I find that I need to do a lot of coaching on how to bring those concepts to life. How do you add the interactivity? Um, and how do you think about your design in a world of unpredictability, right? Mm -hmm. As print, print designers, you mentioned this before, we're very used to a predictable canvas. And so I, I try to get that into their heads that you really don't know how people are going to be using your content, your design, um, what platforms they're going to be on and what context they're going to be in. So um, I really try to focus on that. Um, the other reason we don't focus exclusively on design as a component is because we have those students from other communications fields like journalism, communication studies, and computer information systems even. So I don't want to hold them to necessarily the same design standards as the design students. Um, in fact, I want them in this course to think about uh, places where they're maybe not as comfortable, like the UX, like the content, or like the development. and Conversely, the non-designers, I try to challenge them to do some of the design work for the first time. And, we, you know, they're not very comfortable in that. And they will be the first ones to say, I'm not a great designer. And you know, I try to say, that's okay, because I want you to see this from a designer's perspective so that you respect what they're doing and they're going to respect what you're doing. Uh, and that said, we do have a unit that focuses on style tiles, mm -hmm. uh, mock-ups, and sketch. We use sketch as a program when they're typically using Illustrator or Photoshop. And we do some pattern library things too. So we are doing a few different design components that maybe they're not finding in their other classes that I think are helpful. And if they choose not to use those in their process, that's totally fine. But I want them to see that there's different ways to approach these things. Yeah. Where um, Have you started playing around with Adobe XD? I've played around with it. I haven't uh, integrated it into a class yet. I, I feel like it's still a little restrictive in terms mm -hmm. of you have to pick, for example, different screen canvases. So uh, it's a good prototyping tool maybe for apps. I don't know if it's as good of a prototyping tool for responsive web design, but I'm continuing to look at these kind of things. Yeah, I, it's it, it's not really that important because right now they're the, yeah, one's not mature enough and the other one is you know, mm -hmm. waiting for the other one to <laughs> see what they yeah. do next, you know, to, to push it forward, I guess. Exactly. Um, yeah, I've, I basically, I, I finally made the decision to put my eggs in the 
in the sketch basket. Um, <laughs> but we'll see how that we'll see how that decision goes. Yeah. Um, so I have my students use the use a text editor uh, editor, and it, in the, at the moment they're currently using brackets for working mm -hmm. with HTML and CSS. However, I like the idea of using CodePen for this, but my struggle with it is I'm concerned that students won't understand the, the idea of linking to external you know, style sheets, linking to external JavaScript files, mm -hmm. and, and as well as, un as understand the idea of multiple pages you know, utilizing a single style sheet. So based on like that concern of mine, why do you use CodePen for uh, the beginning HTML exercises? Yeah, I absolutely had the same kind of concerns. And what I really love about CodePen, and I use it for these mini exercises, mm -hmm. I call them, just for learning HTML and CSS basics, is that it's so simple to set up and receive instant feedback without having to install a lot of complex software or maybe have multiple windows going. And what I'm trying to do there really is give the designers uh, some easy wins so we can get them excited about how simple it is to get started. And that can be really encouraging to a designer who has no coding experience, but maybe they open up CodePen and they could start writing a, a few lines of HTML and adding the CSS and they see it appear instantly in the browser window. So that's been really cool. And I, I know that that's not a realistic experience. So what I'm doing concurrently along with the exercises, we're exploring working on a semester-long project, which is a prototype, and that does use the traditional HTML, CSS, JavaScript file setup, so that they understand that too. And I do have to stress a lot of times when we use CodePen is that, hey, CodePen makes this really easy for you. So know that it's putting in a lot of required HTML and link tags for you while that real website is not going to. So I have to warn them a lot don't get too comfortable with how convenient CodePen makes it for you because uh, when you get into that real website prototype, you do need to put these things in. Yeah, well, I also, and I think another advantage of, and like I said, I'm doing the opposite. I'm, I'm like starting off like, you know, we're building a page, you know, these are the elements, you know, uh -huh. working from top to bottom. But I keep going back to CodePen and this like, you know, the idea of atomic design, you know, oh, you, know yeah. you make pattern. I mean, you make element, you make the atoms, you make the, you, you do that's better suited to do that in CodePen, mm -hmm. and then you can yep. just dump them all into a bigger template slash page <laughs> um, down the road. Yeah. yeah, I didn't even think about it in that perspective, but yeah, you're you're seeing a lot of developers and designers trying out those little component ideas in CodePen first mm -hmm. uh, because it's so easy, and then taking and folding them into the overall website. So yeah, that's just another advantage I think of something like CodePen. Yeah, and I started doing that myself when there's something that I want to test out, you know, before I'd crank out, you know, an HTML5 boilerplate and, you know, start working yeah. on that. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> there's yeah. a tool for this. <laughs> Let's use gets, code then. It, yeah, it's getting, it's getting, I feel like, harder and harder to, uh, you know, get started on a project. There's, there's a lot of components to add in and everything. So I, I think at least when you're, you know, trying things out and practicing and learning, CodePen code has some real advantages there. Um, so I have another 
nuts and bolts kind of, you know, philosophical question is mm -hmm. I, I see that you also have students use GitHub and mm -hmm. instead of having them use FTP software and having them, you know, sign up for a hosting service like Media Temple or Bluehost, what's your mm -hmm. rationale for the going for the GitHub route? For hosting yeah, pages. so uh, yeah, a few reasons. Uh, it, it was intentional. Uh, one reason is these days, unless you're working completely solo, uh, maybe on a personal website or a portfolio, how these files typically get onto a production server is typically a implementation detail, in, in my opinion, because typically teams are committing code changes to some kind of central repository these days, whether it's a public one like a GitHub or more of a uh, private one like a Bitbucket. And so a lot of times there's these the automated processes that transfer those files to the server for you, uh, whether that be FTP or SSH. And I find this in my own work. I maybe set up the FTP credentials once, and then I have some kind of process to mm -hmm. go ahead and commit those onto the server. So I, I would rather encourage the modern version control process rather than the whole cowboy coding thing where we're modifying files maybe live on the server. And the other reason for this is because we're working in these teams, we needed a way to version control be between those multiple people in the teams and, okay. you know, gets probably the best way to do that and it's come become kind of the de facto standard in a lot of these development teams so we're also using github's really fantastic and free github pages service mm -hmm. which uh, will actually serve the files uh, on the web for free um, it's really easy to set up and maybe that's not realistic for a production level website but at least i think it gets them closer than um, just going straight to the FTP. That said, I see some places where server knowledge would be more helpful. So I, I totally see the value in that, especially for if they're setting up freelance work or their personal portfolio, things like that. I just don't know if it needs to be a strong focus of this course. And in fact, we're doing a advanced section, uh, advanced responsive web design in the spring. And I, I would like to bring some of that into that course. No, and it, it makes sense because of the fact that you're working in teams. I mean, there's mm -hmm. no other way to maintain code yeah. unless you are with, with without using Git, unless you're. Right. I mean, there's no other way to do it. So that makes that makes sense. So in in my course, I actually do the you know flipped classroom where they do a series of so they're learning HTML and CSS through a series of screencasts mm -hmm. that I created for them outside of the class. Mm -hmm. And so at cool. that point, they're, you know, using brackets and they've got the live preview. And they're, since they're doing it by themselves, they don't really need to version control the code. Mm -hmm. And so at this mm -hmm. point, they just, you know, do it locally. And then once they are done with it locally, this, you know, hit upload once. So since there are no gotcha. teams, you know, that's why I was like, it, it didn't make sense in my context. But it seemed I knew you were doing it for a reason. Right. <laughs> and yeah. The, and, and, the, the, and the GitHub pages, too. I mean, it's free. Yeah, yeah. And uh, speaking of, the, you mentioned the local hosting. Um, yeah, I had a student last night actually asked me, she, she said, uh, you, you know, we're, we're making these websites on our computers. Are we going to put them on the web sometime or, or are they just going to live on our computers? And uh, I, I had completely forgotten to mention that a lot of times 
this is how we work. We work locally and then eventually we'll push up to the repository or to the FTP server so that you can do all of your testing and troubleshooting on the computer. But that's just something I took for granted, mm -hmm. you know, as a developer, but something that's completely new to a new web designer. So I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Some of these things that we, it's, it's, it's crazy, but we have to teach little things like that mm -hmm. and they don't have to have mastery of it, but they still need to know it. Exactly. Um, regardless of, I mean, even if they're just, you know, going to be just a visual designer or just a content strategist, they need to know these, they need to know how their content goes live. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I could list all kinds of issues I struggle with when trying to teach responsive web design. And if anybody's been listening to this podcast, probably has heard me <laughs> in a quite a few previous episodes mention them all, but I'd like to know about some of your own struggles. Uh, first, with the course design itself, is there anything like you're like struggling with since you've now done this a couple of semesters? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like I mentioned, I, I was going into this pretty much blind, uh, which was good and bad. I, I didn't have uh, a lot of the preconceptions about how a course should be offered, what, what the right way to do things is. Um, by far the most challenging thing on the course basis though that I found is the overall pacing of the course week by week. Mm -hmm. There's just so much to cover uh, in web design in general, right? It, web design is so many fields wrapped together and it's just one semester. So a lot of times I wanna teach everything. I'm really overconfident about what I can fit into a class period. So. I really had to learn these first few semesters how to prioritize and just realize that I can't cover everything. Um, so what I need to be able to do is give the students the tools they need to find the answers themselves. So if you need to Google it, find the answer on Google, um, go to CSS Tricks, something like that, because once they get into the real world um, in a, a year or so, they're not going to be spoon fed any kind of information. They're going to have to find it themselves. Um, so that's one of my challenges on the course level. Now, on a conceptual level with web design, some things that are challenging uh, layouts mm -hmm. has been especially challenging. So just laying things out on the screen, it I can emphasize, empathize with that because it took me a long time myself to actually understand things like positioning, floats. And even this year to the course, I've added the flex, flexible layouts, Flexbox. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that's actually a more intuitive layout method, but yeah. it has its own, own level of complexity in a way. Um, so I just learned Flexbox myself and now I'm teaching it. So uh, it's kind of funny. I feel like now more than ever, I have to keep up with up to date with the standards and then figure out a way to communicate that to students who are just learning this. So um, I'm sure it's very overwhelming for somebody that's just coming in and having all of these new layout methods thrown at them. So uh, and then there's new things, you know, like CSS grid coming mm -hmm. and we haven't even touched on that in the class, but I hope to keep it as up to date as possible. So when these new things come out, I'm just going to continue adding it uh, just to keep myself, you know, familiar with these things too. Yeah. And no, and I, two thoughts there. And the first one is in my own course last semester, you know, I, I, I had them make just um, a simple grid framework mm -hmm. kind of thing, just a simple grid, one using yeah. floats, and then I had them do it again, but using Flexbox. Mm. And I just, unofficial you know, survey asked the students, they all, all of them said that Flexbox was 
made more sense to them. Ah, good to hear. Yeah, and good I was like, hear. okay, it didn't make sense to me <laughs> because I probably had, you know got so used to doing it floats, I found it a struggle. But <laughs> uh, so anyway, and I I noticed that, and I noticed too. For one, there's one semester there I got super ambitious, and I was teaching them SAS. Uh-huh. Uh, oh yeah, and yeah. they they took they they got SAS they got CSS quicker when they could use SAS. Ah, yes. I, That's it, interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I it makes sense because it SAS is meant to like make production quicker. Right. I guess in a nutshell. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. they picked it up they were able to pick it up easier, but at the at the same time, now you have to throw in a preprocessor and there was like so many like extra steps you had to add to the system of creating. I was like, I can't I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just another level of abstraction that, yeah. that has its own problems. You, you know, running the command line, running Ruby, and all those things. And uh, a, another question I get on on that subject is: Do you advocate CSS frameworks like Bootstrap or mm -hmm. Foundation? Are you teaching those in the class, and why are you teaching those in the class? And my philosophy, and you know, this could change, but I really want to give the students the knowledge of what these frameworks are actually doing first. Mm -hmm. So how do you actually create a framework from scratch yeah. in CSS? Yeah, and then if they want to start using them on future projects and if it saves them time, that's great. But a lot of these frameworks are going to evolve and change over time. So I feel like if you concentrate on the standards, you're going to be at least set for the future. Yeah, I mean, you can't teach to the framework because just two years ago there was another one called Gumby that was right. the lightweight <laughs> you know one that i was lightweight easy to approach that one's gone who right. And right now there's zurb and bootstrap but how no, who knows how long both of those are going to stick around so i'm with mm -hmm. you I, I i teach them to make their own but it's in on a on a philosophical level for me though it has to do with the fact that i i we're in a so i'm primary my primary response responsibilities teach visual design mm -hmm. so I look at HTML and CSS and JavaScript as the medium of the web, just the way paper is the medium of print. And I right. need to teach it to them from the perspective of you need to know, you need to be familiar with the medium. And right. if you're familiar with the medium, after that, I mean, you are not going to be doing production level code. <laughs> at least yeah. my students aren't. So, right. and if they just need to throw something quickly into Bootstrap, after the fact just to see oh yeah you know this breaks how i was expecting how the you know the media queries work the way i was expecting it to i think that's mm -hmm. good enough at least for me but that's my own personal philosophy on it oh totally yeah whatever gets you there to the prototyping stage quicker um even if you're not going to use a lot of that code in production although some of our design students have done that um or a lot of times we'll have maybe the prototype and then we'll have a more of a back-end developer take that and refine their existing code. Yeah. But I think it, it's good to have something, uh, even if you have you know, all of the uh, typography and things set up um, ahead of time for that developer, it's still going to be helpful. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, this was one source of frustration when Adobe you know, created Comet and then it became you know, mm -hmm. XD. For the life of me, I don't understand why they didn't make it responsive from the beginning. Meaning, like, when you when you draw a rectangle, that you have to do it in pixels. Why right. it couldn't have been percentages? So you could have two boxes in an artboard that are each at fifty percent, and then as you resize the artboard, the thing just right. recalculates. 
I, yeah, I, it, yeah. I just don't understand why they didn't get to like that level <laughs> with, yeah. with, those, with that program. Uh, yeah, I've been, I've been conflicted on the, on those uh, kind of programs that supposedly do generate, you know, production level code. Oh, yeah. Code I don't want it to use. produce code. Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah. I just gotcha. want it as a quick prototype tool that they could literally, you know, put their columns in there. And then here's my three columns. Let me resize the artboard. Oh, the three columns are starting to get scrunched here. So this is where mm -hmm. I need to put a new artboard and go to two columns. Yeah, exactly. I just okay. simple as that. Just so they can actually like see in real time where their designs break. Right. Yeah. And th that's the dream, right? Yeah. That, that would be the ultimate prototyping tool. I don't, I don't know if anyone's got it quite right yet, but no. And 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 another one that was a little. I can't. I mean, I can understand why Sketch didn't because they, you know, they started before. Like you know, they really, you know, they started at the same time as responsive design. So I mean, it was. Right. I can understand why they didn't, but like for Adobe, why, when you draw a text box, why can't you apply padding to it? Why don't you right. apply CSS, the CSS terminology? It doesn't have to produce the code, but you apply mm. padding to a box. You, um, you adjust line height. You don't adjust line spacing. I mean, you right. do things in M's, not pixels. So why they didn't use that? terminology was kind of confusing to me <laughs> yeah it's, it seems like a lot of these programs are still stuck in more of the you know print fix mm -hmm. design you know world and ho hopefully that starts to change but I, I you know i feel like these are good tools for exploring the designs and doing mm -hmm. the patterns um but in the end right now at least html css javascript's approachable enough that a designer can get in there. We've we've proven it mm -hmm. in your class and uh, my class that students are able to learn these things, and these are design students with without a lot of prior knowledge. So it is possible. Yeah, no, no, it's, and this yeah. leads into my my next question is that I think it's unrealistic for any educator to teach visual design, user experience, and front end development all within a single class and do them mm -hmm. each one well, since these. These are skills, you know, necessary for most any designer entering the field. If you could wave your magic wand, what would your ideal curriculum look like? Or maybe at a minimum, what would be a good, what would be a core of two to four classes that could, you know, teach all these things that students do need? Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a need for a handful of classes to give them that well-rounded education. I, I know personally I cannot fit all of this into one course. We do very little chunks uh, in each unit. But um, to really get into the details, I would say that there does need to be a course focused entirely on usability and user research. Mm -hmm. um, maybe one that's more interaction and motion design focused or even human-computer interaction just mentioning those principles in addition to the web design course where you really learn to build the sites and remembering that the web design course could apply more than just to the web so other media as well so email television mm -hmm. apps things like that I think that thinking goes a long way uh, the other place I see a gap in our education is in content strategy mm -hmm. a lot of times we forget about 
how we're going to gather the content, what is the suitable content, you know, how are we going to prioritize that content. So I, I feel like a course just on con content strategy would also be effective. Uh, we have a team here at Kent State. They're working on this proposal for a user experience design minor, which mm -hmm. uh, anyone in the communications fields, I believe, or other majors could take. And so this responsive design course would be a component of that. And it's going to have a few classes like that, like I mentioned. So I, I feel like something like that is a good step in that direction, as well as just integrating more of these into the curriculum for say visual design. Yeah. And that's the real key because if for this to be successful, it can't, these can't be standalone classes. These, these philosophies need to be threaded throughout mm -hmm. a traditional design program. I mean, these, like you said, yeah. design a postcard, now design an HTML <laughs> email. Because <laughs> exactly. they, they both serve the same purpose. Um, so right. no, that's good. So, Chris, uh, before I let you go, is there anything that you are working on personally that you would like to share? Or is there something that you want to promote or any advice <laughs> for educators that you want to shout out to? Yeah, uh, well, I always like to give a shout out to the great things we're doing at IdeaBase. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really unique in that we have a group of student employees doing real paid client work as part of their undergrad and graduate education. So um, one aspect I think has been really helpful is getting students working with clients on a regular basis and um, getting them to work on these real world projects. So um, I would say if you wanted to learn more about IdeaBase and mm -hmm. maybe more of the classroom experiences that we're um, putting on here at the College of Communication and Information at Kent State, uh, we have a website that's ideabasekent.com. And the other thing that I do is I tweet about the class or what yes. we're doing in the class. So that's at rwdkent on Twitter. And you mentioned the course website, which is at rwdkent.com. Yeah, how do you, okay, because I, 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 I follow you on Twitter, and how do you okay. manage that to, like, tweet during the class and, like, keep all that stuff? <laughs> I can't. I can't. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, I just can't. A lot of times. Yeah, a lot of times I have to uh, remind myself, hey, you, you need to take a picture to, in tonight's class or have some kind of topic to post. Um, one other thing we try doing um, is having the students come up with the tweets. And so last semester I had them do, what's one thing that you learned that was new today? And um, I give a bonus point if they provide something for the Twitter account. So just mm. trying to make it a little more engaging. And I think people are genuinely outside of Kent State, maybe interested in what we're doing in the class. So trying to put that information out there as much as possible. I, I like that idea because, you know, students do need to learn about social media. So what better way about like, okay, it's it's your job now to also manage the social media for this mm -hmm. course. Yeah, it's a, it's, why it's not? It's a side project. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, tr <laughs> we'll try whatever works. And yeah. uh, if, if it doesn't work, that's okay. So I'm, I'm open to trying new things, yeah. definitely. Well, yeah, I'm going to try it now that I've thought of it. But it might be a little too late to get <laughs> for this semester. But future, I'll have to do figure it. out how to do that. <laughs> all right. That's all we have time for today on episode 32 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Chris Hallahan, for being so generous with his time. I want to thank the audience for listening. And I also want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. Finally, I want to thank the AIGA, 
and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. You can discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts on the web at designedu.today. You can follow us on Twitter at designedu today, on our Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. If you'd like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve the show, contact me through Twitter or the show's email at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to Design EDU Today. <laughs>